0: through 34. Romans 8:31 through 34, Please stand as we honor God with His word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed, who indeed is interceding for us?
1: Amen. Julius, in the uh, Sunday school time, was talking about the sovereignty of God. And uh, I definitely believe in the sovereignty of God because only the sovereignty of God would allow my wife, Karen to have put up with me for 42 years as of today. (laughs) Thank you, Karen. I love you. (laughs) So um, God is definitely sovereign in keeping us uh, together. Anybody that can put up with me for that long, um, it's got to be a saint. Well, we... uh, We we recently uh, purchased a refrigerator. Our refrigerator went bad uh, at the parsonage. So um, we purchased a new refrigerator and came with the usual uh, warranty on all uh, parts and labor. And I asked the uh, salesperson if they could guarantee that that fridge would work properly. And he told me that's what the warranty is for. Well, that made me ask a question. What's the difference between a guarantee and a warranty? Is there a difference? And so I looked it up and there really uh, technically is not a difference except for generally as time has progressed, uh, they've grown a little bit apart. A warranty is a written document where a guarantee can be either written or verbal. You wouldn't say, for instance, can you warranty that I have enough gas in my gas tank to make it to my destination? You would say, can you guarantee that I can do that? Right? So there is a difference now, but originally they came from the same French word out of the old Frankish language, and the word began with GW you see where we're going with this okay so as time went on and as the words spread out to other locations some kept the G and dropped the W guarantee in other locations they dropped the G and kept well whichever way um, I just said it the uh, they the One place kept the G, dropped the W. The other place kept the W and dropped the G. That's the way it goes. Okay, so uh, they, uh, so but they both guarantee, warranty. You can hear the the end of it's the same. Well, just like those kinds of words that have split um, from an original word, there are some biblical truths that have different phrases that originally meant the same thing. For instance, eternal security and perseverance of the saints. Those two phrases basically meant the same thing, but over time, they've drifted apart so that they have different meanings to different people today. But ultimately they do mean the same thing. The phrase eternal security tells us that God has secured us for Himself. Perseverance of the saints means that God has secured us for Himself and continues to secure us until that day of Christ or until we die. That God will cause each saint to persevere Until the end. And that is what our text is about today. The theme from our text states that God secures his heirs through Jesus Christ. God secures us as the heirs. That's what we've been talking about since verse 17. Remember? That we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then the, the passage from that point on has been talking to us about how we as heirs are held through the suffering and through the the, uh, difficulties and through the temptations because God is working all those sufferings and persecutions and, and testings, He is working them all for the good of His people, of those who are called according to His purpose. Early Thursday morning, Hurricane Laura came ashore at the, the uh, border of Texas and Louisiana. It was a devastating Category 4 hurricane. Tremendous winds and high water threatened to destroy anything that was in its way. Trees toppled, vehicles were smashed, buildings were literally lifted up and crashed to the ground from the winds and from the storm surge that passed through. Nothing could withstand its power. Well, during the past few weeks, we've looked at Paul's warnings that Christians are going to suffer as heirs of God, that that the pressures and the the storms of life are going to come against us and threaten our faith. The force of sin and suffering so strong, so powerful that no one on their own would be able to withstand that force. Yet many Christians over the years have withstood those temptations, those persecutions, those sufferings, by sheltering in the rock of ages, cleft for me. Jesus Christ, through whom God secures his heirs. And so I want you to notice first this morning, the what of our security. The what of our security is God's greatness. Nothing that you or I can do could ever assure us that we would stand the tests of time. That you and I could face whatever struggles that come into our lives. Those things that have been talked about from verse 18 to verse 25. Nothing that you or I could do could cause our faith to remain secure. Secure. And yet verse 31 asks us the what question. And it also gives us the answer. What then shall we say to these things? To the things that he has been talking about since verse 17 on to now. Really, everything that he's talked about in the whole book of Romans up to this point, but particularly those things from verse 17 on. What are we to say about those things If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that isn't really asking a question. That's what's called a rhetorical question. Because the answer is obvious. If God is for us, if the creator of the universe, the redeemer of humanity, if he is on our side, then who can be against us? And the answer is no one. What more can a Christian say about the truth that he has just talked about in verses 28, 29, and 30 for us? That God foreknew us, that He predestined us, that He justified us, that He called us, that He justified us, and that He will glorify us. What more can we say about that if God is for us? then who could prevent any of those things from happening in our life? That great golden chain is backed by God's character and God's nature. It is backed by God's power and God's strength. Someone might ask you a question. They might say, you know, how do you know that you're a Christian? And your answer, if you're honest, would be, well... Tell you the truth, I know me. And I know that there's no reason that God would accept me. Even now, though I am a Christian, there is no reason why God should accept me. I have nothing good in me by myself. You know your struggles with faith, you know the the difficulties that you go through. And you know that if that is what is to keep you, you're done. There is no hope for you. And so as you go through those struggles and those failures, by the time you go to bed at night, you probably look back and say, how could God still love me? How could He? And if you're trusting in yourself, if you think that, that somehow you are earning God's favor, that, that somehow you are, are able to pull it all together, then you'd better shudder and shake. Because there is nothing that you can do to remain faithful to God. When those storms of your life hit you like a hurricane, Sickness, the death of a family member, political turmoil, temptations, all these pound against you, threatening to destroy your faith. How can you hold on? You can't unless you're born again. Unless God has done a work in you in which He has brought new life to you. Your security is not reliant upon your ability to stay steadfast in the faith. You did not foreknow yourself. You did not predestine yourself. You did not call yourself. And you certainly did not justify yourself. And therefore, you cannot keep yourself. God alone is the one who has done those things. If God is for you, who can be against you? The drowning person cannot save himself, or he wouldn't be drowning. He needs the the lifeguard to go out. And yet, even when the lifeguard gets there, that drowning person might fight against the lifeguard in his thrashing, in his attempts to to survive. But if the lifeguard is well trained, that lifeguard will make sure that that drowning person is brought in safely to shore. However, the way that God keeps us is not the way the lifeguard does. The lifeguard may have to take a person who is fighting against Him, clobber Him on the jaw, and then haul Him in. But the Scripture tells us that God works differently. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts to change our heart's desires, to make us desire to know God, to walk with Him, and to obey Him. In the movie, Sabrina, the last lines of the film are by Linus Larrabee, who is played by Harrison Ford. And he emotionally says at the end of the movie, Save me, Sabrina Fair. You're the only one who can. Oh, what a wonderful ending to a movie. How passionate it was. But those words, save me, you're the only one who can. Those are the words that you and I must say to God. If you say that to the God who created you, to the God who called you to be His, then He will justify you and He will glorify you. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's the what in that question. What then shall we say to these things? And that what is God's greatness. It is His power. Who is the greatest, the most powerful being? Is He your God? Do you know Him? And does he, more importantly, know you? Is God for you? Or are you still trying to manipulate your way into heaven, still trying to to figure out how you can get God to be on your side rather than you be on his side? Are you still trying to save yourself by your good abilities and works? There are Christians who believe that they can save themselves or they can unsave themselves. That they can take themselves out of the hand of of the powerful, eternal God. And they can turn themselves away. They're afraid that either they or someone they might know can fall away from God's grace. To them I say, if God is for you, then who can be against you? God will hold you. God will keep you. He who called you justifies you, He will glorify you. That's the what. The what? God's greatness. Yet how can we know for sure that God will not turn against us? Yes, he has the greatness and the ability to hold us, but how do we know that he will hold us? He may be great, but is he caring? Job asked those kinds of questions in his book. If God is great, why is this happening to me? And if he is great and powerful, then does He care about me? Is God powerful enough? Is God great enough? If this suffering hits your family, is God powerful enough to keep you from falling? Paul's answer is yes. If God is for us, who can be against us? So yes, God is powerful, but does He care enough about you to do that? In our groaning and our Waitings that we read in verses 18 to 25? In the midst of that, does God simply allow that to happen in our lives because He has an agenda, He has a purpose, and it doesn't matter who He hurts on the way to get that done? Paul's answer is the wherefore of God's generosity. Wherefore? That is, a, uh, uh, what is the, the reason that this has happened in our life? Paul reveals that God is not only powerful, that God also cares. The wherefore of God's generosity. You see, wherefore is an explanation. It, it rings out in verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all thanks? In chapters 3 through chapter 8, the Apostle Paul made many statements about promises that God has given. But how do we know that He's going to keep those promises for you or for me? Is there any proof that God, having predestined us will justify us and will glorify us? Just because the Scripture says we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, does that mean that we will not have the Holy Spirit leave us, that He will get tired of our constant failures, and He will turn away from us? And that's a valid question. The answer is found in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul declares that the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is God's guarantee for us. The fact that the Father did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us. Sending Him into a corrupt world. Causing Him to become a human being, leaving the glories of heaven, emptying Himself of His divine powers, becoming a human being. God the Father gave Him up to the corruption of this world. He gave Him up to the sufferings of this world, and He gave Him up to death in this world. We read in Romans 5, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's guarantee that He cares. That not only does He have the power, but that He has the heart for us. In the Superman remake movie in the 1980s, Superman gave up his powers so that he could be with Lois Lane. That's nothing compared to what God the Father gave up. Remember, my friends, we worship one God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one God. And so when God the Son came into this world... It was God. The Father is not unrelated to the Son. The will and the heart and the passion of our God is one. So for God the Son to leave all of that and come into this world and become a human being It's the heart of God. It is His guarantee that He cares for us. He is powerful enough, and He cares enough to guarantee that we are His forever and ever. This is God's guarantee. The rock of ages cleft for me Let me hide myself in Thee. The water and the blood from the riven side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath. Make me pure. The cross is God's guarantee that He will love us to the end. That those for whom He died, that those will be His Forever and ever. The cross is all the proof that you need that God is not only powerful enough to keep us, but that He cares enough to keep us. Which brings us to a third truth that we find in this passage. The what is God's greatness that He will secure His heirs, the wherefore is God's generosity. In giving His Son that secures all the promises of God for His heirs. But now we see who God's guarantee is given to. The who. God's guarantee to you and to me if we are His heirs. God does not give His guarantee to the whole human race. Some people believe that God provided the possibility of salvation to everyone and that He saves those who accept that possibility. Well, let me ask you something. Is God too weak to save those for whom Christ died? Is God too weak to save those that He foreknew? Is God too weak to save those that He predestined? Is God too weak to save those that He called? Paul's answer, if God is for us, who can be against us? He is mighty to save. If God is great enough, doesn't He care whether or not we are saved? Is God simply a fisherman who casts out and hopes that somebody might accept so that He can go home with A fish in his bucket? What happens if no fish bites? What happens if no one says yes to the gospel message? Is heaven empty? The answer is no. God has done what is necessary to make sure that the bucket is full. That the heirs are there for all of eternity. God cares so deeply, He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. Is this just a hope that maybe some might believe? Paul's answer is in verse 33. Who will be saved? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God has guaranteed a heaven full of heirs. And how has He done it? Because He foreknew them, before the foundations of the world were even set in place. And He predestined them to become like His Son. And He sent the Holy Spirit to work in them so that they might come to believe. And having come to believe, they cried out repentance. And life awakened within them. The power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. Jesus declared in John 10, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The father in his greatness set his hand on them. He plucked them from Satan's grip. He placed them into the care of his eternal son so that they might be secure for all of eternity. And he did so from eternity past. Paul wrote in Ephesians, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You see, God not only offered salvation for us, He guaranteed it by the eternal election. God chose us, set His seal upon us. Election is not to those who think that they could hoodwinked God into somehow thinking that they were okay. Julius, in the Sunday school lesson, quoted from Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, we have done this, we have done that in your name. And God said to them, depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Lawlessness is saying to God, I'm going to do it my way, not yours. I'm going to make myself good enough, and you're going to have to accept me in that way. Jesus understood that human nature is such that it says, God, I can save myself. Whether that saving myself is by believing or by doing, I can save myself. But it is sinful human nature that says that. The book of Romans Chapter 1 to 3 destroys any hope that we might have that somehow I have any responsibility or any ability, I should say, to save myself or to have any part in that salvation. Justice does not work by having my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. You see, God expects you to live perfectly. God expects you in every thought, every action, in every word that everything that you do is going to be holy and righteous and just. That's God's expectation. He created us in His image to reflect His character and His nature. That's how He created us, and He expects that. So if that's what's expected how can I try to take good deeds, which are what are expected of me, and trade those for bad deeds? No, you have to have something more than what is expected. You have to have something greater to trade. But we don't have anything greater to trade. Because all we do is what is expected of us when we do something that is halfway decent. You owe God perfection. You owe God sinlessness. He created you to be perfect. So every sin that you commit, every evil thought that you give, every lying word that you speak, every non-perfect action is an insult to Him. Add all those up. That's hundreds, maybe even thousands a day. How do you expect to escape God's wrath? When that's what's true about who you are. How can you ever pay off that kind of outstanding debt? It is impossible for anyone but God. And that is why He must elect us if we are to be saved. He must do the choosing. He must do the ordaining. Which brings us to the final truth in this passage. The why of God's graciousness. Why would God ever show us grace? Why would he ever do anything that would somehow cause us to be blessed by him? Why? Why? Would God elect anyone? Paul establishes it had nothing to do with you, it had nothing to do with me. Simply human nature instead suppresses the truth about God, tries to make God over in my image rather than in the image as it's revealed in the scriptures. So, why would God extend grace? by which we receive adoption as sons, we become heirs of God, having been elected before the foundations of the world. And that's the beauty of verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The word justification means to be declared right, as if we had not sinned. God removes from our record any and every taint of wrongdoing, whether in deed, thought, or word. Go to the judge of all the earth. Look in his record of our history. And for a person whom he has elected, and who's believed upon him because of that election, you'll find no record. Of anything that they have ever done against him. But I saw him steal that candy bar. Nothing here. He lied to me. I don't find it written here. But he committed sexual sin. Forgiven and removed, far as the east is from the west. So far is my transgression removed from me. But isn't God just? Isn't he righteous? Isn't it true that God cannot tolerate sin, that he can't look upon it with acceptance at all? Then how could he forgive our sins? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And here we need to pause and consider those four statements about God's grace. First, Jesus Christ died. Not just Jesus died. That's important for us to see that. In other words, it's not just that a man was crucified, a man by the name of Jesus. It is Christ Jesus who is crucified. Christ, the anointed one, the one that God appointed for this task, chosen by God to take the place of sinners, of you and me, to die in our place, to absorb the wrath of God. Jesus, Christ Jesus, the anointed one who is Jesus, which means Savior. The one who was born sinless and died sinless. A perfect sacrifice who in his death gathered all of the sins of the elect upon himself and then absorbed the wrath of God for all of those sins so that those sins could be forgiven and removed. More than that. What could be more than that? What could be more than that? The eternal Son of God came to this world, became a man, lived out this perfect life, took the sins of all the elect upon himself, and died for us. More than that. What is more than the humiliation of the Son of God who emptied Himself of all of His power and all of His glory? What could be more than that? More than that. More than allowing us to mock Him, His own creation, to spit on Him, to drive nails into Him. More than that. He was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. That means that God accepted the death of Jesus Christ in our place. That He accepted Christ Jesus as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, God guaranteed that the elect for whom Christ died will be raised in eternity. We are heirs of God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But how? Because He is seated at the right hand of God. That is the seat of authority, the seat of of power. After His resurrection, Jesus met with the disciples. And in Matthew 28, 18, He tells us that all authority, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Authority for what? The authority to save. The authority to save those whom the Father had elected. The keys of death and Hades belong to Him, and He gives life to whomsoever He will. By what power? By what authority? By the power of His shed blood for our sin. He, it says, intercedes for us. We learned that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with inaudible groans. That is, it's not by words that the Holy Spirit groans for us, we saw last week, but rather he is groaning as he is turning our hearts, which are so hard, to line them up with God's purpose and God's will. And that is his means of interceding for us as he lines up our hearts and our prayers to line up with God's purpose. So, how is it that Jesus Christ intercedes for us? It is not with words, he intercedes with his blood. Jesus does not sit up in heaven and plead our case, with words. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the saints intercede to Mary. And Mary intercedes to Jesus. And Jesus intercedes to the Father. And why is that necessary? Because the Father is either too hard-hearted or too busy. And so he has to have others that know what the issues are that you face and that I face. And and, and so the saints have to intercede for us. And and they tug on Mary's arm and say, Mary, pay attention, you know, to Daniel down there. He's in trouble. Can you help him out? Mary goes over to Jesus and says, son, you know, I love you, you know. So could you do this as a favor for me? And then Mary has to, or Jesus has to turn to the Father and go, Father, I know that you're just and I know that you're righteous, but can you do this? That is a slap in the face of God. It is the Father who determined our salvation. It is the Father who sent his Son. It is the Father who the Son sent forth the Holy Spirit to work in this world for your sake and for my sake, to die on the cross for us. God doesn't need anybody yanking on him to try to get him to pay attention. He is not Baal, where you have to scream and yell and cut yourself and jump up and down to get his attention because he might be sleeping or he might be in the restroom. No. No. Jesus Christ intercedes for us with His blood. The moment the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, that is, into the heavens, from His death in our place, His blood is constantly interceding on our behalf. On those whom the Father has elected. The elect, Stand in right and holy relationship to the Father because Christ is present in heaven. The fact that you know that this is true guarantees your eternal security. If you understand the reality of what I just explained, then it means that God has opened your eyes to understand His truth. And your heart is saying, Amen. Amen. You came to the cross. And you died with Jesus Christ. By faith. You acknowledge that that He took your place. That you deserve damnation. Damnation. You knew that God would never be impressed with anything that you ever did or could do. That your sin was far too great. Yet despite your rebellious heart, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the horrors of your sinfulness and your rebellion. And He broke through your self-righteousness. And He showed you Jesus Christ. Savior, your Savior. Faith awakened in your heart. You confessed your sin and you found forgiveness. New life in Him. You see, God secures His heirs, His elect, through Jesus Christ. so I have just one question to leave you with this morning. Do you have absolute assurance that you are his elect? In other words, do you have absolute assurance that if you died today, you would be in the presence of God for all of eternity? See, that's the question. People can argue over doctrine. They can argue over the, the various things about, you know, what does election mean, what's predestination mean, what's foreknowledge mean, and all those kind of things. It doesn't really matter. The theology questions are things that, that are important, and we need to understand them, and we need to know them. But the real question is not whether or not you were elect or not elect. The real question is, is God speaking to your heart? and as he called you to himself if you turn away it's not god's fault the bible says we'll stand before him without excuse the message of the gospel is going out has gone out since creation and then he gave us his word on top of that and then he gave us his son on top of that There is no excuse for not being in a right relationship with God. If you want to prove that you're not elect, keep a hard heart. Say, I'll do it my way. But if God has called you, and the Holy Spirit is softening that heart, then come to Him. Trust in Him. It is your only hope. This is is God's guarantee that He cares. Will you accept Him today? And if you're a Christian, rest in that calm assurance that no matter how hard the struggles of life are, no matter how big the temptations, the Holy Spirit is going to keep you Bring you through those. God will glorify you on that final day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you today not with any expectation that we have anything to offer you. But we come to you today because we believe that you are building your church. That you are calling people into a relationship with you. And that you are God. A God who is great and powerful. A God who cares so much that you gave your son as a guarantee that we, whom you have saved, will be kept. Oh, that we might behold our God today, that we might see Him clearly, and that with Job we might say, oh, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but today, today, my eyes have seen you. Today, for the first time, my eyes are open to the grandeur of your love and your greatness. We might call out to you, oh, that we might behold you in all of your glory